0: The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. And he called to him the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. One of the great things about having a power outage for several days is that you get to clean out your entire refrigerator. you smelled old beans? (laughs) Lent can feel a lot like cleaning out your fridge. You have to sort out what's still fresh and alive and what's rotted and dead. And there's an intentionality in Lent that can feel about as fun as finding those moldy pinto beans at the back of the shelf. But it's important to remember two things. Everyone has moldy pinto beans at the back of their fridge from time to time. And when you find the moldy beans, you toss them out. You don't open the Tupperware lid and set them on the counter for 40 days to really contemplate their horror. Speaking spiritually, doing the hard work of trying to look full-facedly at your sinful habits and patterns isn't about obsessing over them, essentially setting them on the counter of your life so that you can constantly be reminded of their stench. It is rather a work done in concert with the Holy Spirit to bring about a cleansing because your soul is worth it. Modern life has left most of us feeling lonely, spread too thin, and constantly distracted. Our own guilt on top of that can leave us feeling like a fraud, like if anyone found out the truth about us, we would be left alone for sure. And we've all developed coping mechanisms to try to survive this exhaustion. And psychiatric sciences are catching up to what the church has always known, that we need seasons of intentional reflection, space to reconsider what life is all about. So we cut things out, alcohol, social media, sugar, or sometimes meals all together as a way of asking ourselves in our bodies, what? is necessary? What is the one thing necessary? And what is the good life? There's a key difference, a breaking off point, if you will, between those who follow Christ and those who don't in how these culling seasons are approached. Lent is not a self-improvement season, nor is it a time for self-flagellation. In a sense, I think Lent should be a time for us to get into the habit of developing a set of frequently asked questions that we come back to again and again. And I cannot think of a better set of questions to frequently ask than the ones that St. Paul is asking for us in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? St. Paul knew quite well who could be against us. He bore the marks in his body of the stones hurled at him until he was left for dead. Paul will be shipwrecked, beaten, imprisoned, threatened, and maligned as he goes about filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. If St. Paul cared more about his own comfort than the message of Christ's kingship, he would never have left the house on Straight Street. At his conversion, as he sat blind, awaiting Ananias to come and open his eyes, God showed to him all of the things that he would suffer for the sake of Christ. And he still went around the world. If God be for us, who can be against us isn't a formula to a life without suffering. On the contrary, for many Christians throughout the world, being on the side of God leads directly to incredible suffering. There are those now who have been granted a temporary authority, many of whom are misusing it, but there is a day coming when Christ will be all in all and God will put all things in subjection under him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the world's true Lord and there is none beside him. We're told that God is a God of the living and not the dead. Therefore, fear not those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And this is what St. Paul is getting at. If you are in Christ, then God is for you. The legal indebtedness of your sin has been done away with, and the judge of all things, the only one with an opinion that ultimately matters has already issued his verdict and come out in favor of you because of the work that Christ has accomplished in his incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. If God is for us, who can be against us? The second question we should ask ourselves regularly is if God the Father didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? St. Paul is telling us that God has given his very best gift. He has given himself already. Why would he hold back any other good gift from us? There's an icon that I love. I I sometimes use a variation of it on the front of our order of worship in Advent. It's called Mary wider than the heavens. And the idea is that Mary, truly the Theotokos, the mother of God, the God-bearer, carried Christ, God the Son, within her. An early prayer of the church says, "O womb wider than the span of heaven, a womb that contained him that the seven heavens do not contain. As St. Paul says to the Colossian church, by Jesus all things were created, all things were created through him and for him, and in him all things hold together. Do you see that in Christ, the Son of God being given to us, we have already been given all things because all things exist in Him? There's no remainder. We live in a world that exists in a nearly constant state of need. I read a while back that there are more Americans with an Amazon Prime account than typically vote in big elections. Acquisition is the name of the game. It's like we've got this black hole that just demands more and more and more. And the dark side of this constant need is what the emptiness drives us to do. We're never satisfied. You can see the more obvious signs of this emptiness along the streets of our city. Opioid-related deaths in the U.S. have been rising and rising in recent years. In Oregon, the average heroin user is a young man in his 20s. By almost any metric you look at, we're not doing well as a culture because of this constant need that we have, this this sense that we're lacking something. But can you imagine? What would happen if every person in this city who claimed to be a Christian who has been baptized into Christ spent ten minutes each morning asking themselves, if God has given me Jesus Christ, what else could I possibly need? Imagine if you didn't have to prove anything in conversation with people, even people who look down on you. Imagine entering each day with all of its pain and joy and sorrow and comfort and viewing it as a gift. Imagine not viewing other people as competition or a nuisance or a liability. There's this great scene in 30 Rock where Jack, who's the high-powered CEO who's spent his entire life climbing corporate success and chasing money, is talking with Kenneth, who is like the exact opposite of Jack. Kenneth is a page. He's basically got the worst internship you can imagine. He works like 120 hours a week and basically gets paid nothing. And in this particular scene, as these two very different characters are talking, you get to see for a moment the world as these characters see it. And so Jack looks around the room, and everything that he sees, including people, has a dollar sign attached to it, because for him, everything is about money. Kenneth, on the other hand, looks at everyone and everything around him, and it's all Muppets. (laughs) It's all just friendship and good intentions. The Christian vision of the world is neither of these things. It is not a zero-sum competition, nor is it naive idealism that fails to look at reality squarely. Rather, we are to encounter the world as cruciform people. People who have been formed in the way of the cross can actually take evil seriously with Solzhenitsyn, we can say that the line of good and evil isn't just out there, it's in here. It's running right down the center of every human heart. And when we recognize that God has given us Christ and Him crucified, we no longer have to pretend that evil isn't devastating. We know that it is because we have been given an afflicted Christ. But we also no longer have to live as if we're locked in the devastation of evil because we have been given Christ, the firstborn from the dead, the head over all, not just creation, but the new creation. If God is for you, who could possibly be against you? If God has given you the crucified and risen Christ, what good gift would he possibly withhold from you? If you have been given Christ, and in him the entire universe is held together, what more could you possibly need? Yeah, you say. But you don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the ways that I've failed as a parent or a spouse or a friend. You don't know the shameful secrets that I carry around. Ah, But St. Paul is ahead of us here, too. If God himself justifies us, who is left to condemn us? Your sin that the devil has used to imprison you in shame and guilt no longer has power over you because, as St. Paul says to the Philippians, he counts all things as loss so that he may have a righteousness that doesn't come through the law but through faith in Christ. He says earlier in his letter to the Romans, You are justified by God's grace as a gift. The devil will tempt you to sin, and when you fall into it, he will heap condemnation on you. Martin Luther says, When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. If God has given you justification as a free gift, what is there that could stand up and condemn you? After all, Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, the one who made of himself a perfect oblation and sacrifice, the one who was resurrected in the power of the Spirit and has ascended to the right hand of God, meaning he is ruling the universe as co-regent with God the Father, is himself interceding for us. The eternal high priest, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, before whom all the elders and the multitudes of saints bow down in endless worship for he alone is worthy of all praise this God this man has given you his own righteousness as a gift and he endlessly intercedes on your behalf why would he do this I've met myself why would he do this Rowan Williams has this insightful little line. He says that humans—he's he's British, okay—just cut cut through the British and translate it into American. He says humans love largely because of fellow feeling, meaning we get along and therefore we have common interests, so we can love each other. Humans love largely because of fellow feeling, but God's love is such that it never depends on having something in common. The Creator has, in one sense, nothing. In common with his creation. How could he? But he is completely free to exercise his essential being, which is love, wherever he wills. God does all of this for you and for me because of love, but his love is not based on a shared heritage or common interests. His love is his love because he is love. Which means that you don't have to be the greatest parent who ever lived. You don't have to be the best in school and have perfect grades. You don't have to have your boss or your peers recognize all of your achievements by offering you greater success. You don't have to be the perfect child or husband or wife or friend. What is the burden that you have brought to this place? That you're not good enough? That you're unlovable? That they won't accept you or recognize your greatness? Have you been keeping a list of all of your wins and your achievements in order to prove to everyone, look, I deserve to be in? It's exhausting. Have you been feeding all of your failures so that they keep whispering to you at night about how shameful you are, how you don't deserve anything good, how when anyone finds out they're going to leave? It's paralyzing. If God is for you, if he has given you Christ, his son, and if he himself has justified you and made you righteous as a gift, What is there in any possible world that could separate you from the love of Christ Jesus? Amen.